Hello, I'm Dennis McLevy with CFA Institute. I'm here with another episode of our Take 15 series. Uh, I'm welcoming Chris Finger, who is head of research uh, for Risk Metrics Group. Chris is based in uh, Geneva. Chris, I'm really interested in this idea that you look at catalysts of, of turbulence. And today, what would you see as the main catalysts? Well, is what we've looked at over the course of this year were two potential catalysts um, for turbulence that I think uh, everyone worried about in January and February and to some extent have, uh, have borne out. Um, one was the prominence of the carry trade, particularly the one involving uh, the yen and the U.S. dollar um, and how much uh, activity in that trade might cause a spark and sort of knock-on effects to, to the exchange rates. Um, and the other was the subprime crisis, which I guess... Uh, doesn't need saying that uh, certainly has borne out. Um, so it was a potential catalyst and a realized catalyst um, by the end of the year. Right. I mean, I think the topic for today really is the pricing of illiquid securities. And I'm wondering how you, how do we go from January, February into huge concerns about pricing illiquid securities? Well, I think if we're talking about illiquid securities, that's that's really the subprime space. Um, and I guess by January, February, there was enough concern that the uh, the underlying fundamentals of the market of subprime were, were bad. Um, there was weakness in the housing market um, that ultimately would need to filter through to all of the securities that have been written backed by the housing market. Um, but yet, the those securities don't trade liquidly, and so there wasn't a lot of pricing information. There wasn't a lot of market information flowing through. So all we had were notions that things could go wrong. Um, but it was really hard to say what could possibly happen, um, how individual holders of these securities might be able to look at their positions, um, and how we might think about uh, assessing whether particular funds might have these types of problems sort of laying around. Well, back in January and February, what kind of questions should people have been asking? What were they asking? Were they missing questions? Um, I think folks were, were starting to ask questions. I think um, there's probably uh, two sets of questions depending on if you're actually the one holding the security or if you're sort of invested in somebody who's managing securities backed by subprime on your behalf. Um, if, uh, if it's the latter case, then I think what you're worried about is more generally um, does the manager I've invested with um, are they facing problems with regards to um, accurate marking of their positions? Um, uh, does that knock on to um, the potential for their inability to sell positions when they want to or having to sell at a greater discount than, than otherwise? So I think it's, you know, does my manager have prospective problems with respect to illiquid securities generally, um, but because we know that that's an issue that sort of is, uh, is laying around for the subprime market? Um, to an individual investor, the actual holder of these securities, I think it's more, what do I do? I'm holding this thing. I don't get prices very often. Um, I don't, certainly don't get prices from many sources. Um, but yet, I still want to be able to say something about how much they're worth, about uh, what the market is doing, about the potential losses that I might see, et cetera. And so what do I do um, if there's no pricing information out there? So that's the question. What do I do then? <laughs> um, I, I think what what we've uh, suggested to a lot of folks um, is that 
you look where there is market information. Um, and it, it does take a, a bit of a leap of logic. I think uh, if we back up a little bit, um, if we talk about securities written on subprime, and without getting into the details, um, they're securities that reference a specific pool of mortgages um, underwritten by a specific set of originating banks um, with a particular set of, of, uh, of structures, et cetera. Um, so fairly granular, fairly detailed. Um, and so one way of valuing that is to take all of that information into account, exactly what, all the, what are the mortgages, what geography did they come from, how many of them are adjustable versus fixed rate, how many of them are doc versus no doc, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, and also factor in the very specific nature of how the structure works, exactly how do prepayments flow through, um, how does interest get paid, et cetera. Um, so really dissecting down to the grassroots. Really dissecting down to the grassroots, being very granular, taking account very much the specifics of, of the transaction. Um, but what you leave out there is the market's general appetite for this type of, of security, this type mm -hmm. of investment, um, because this one you probably don't have pricing information on, and you can't say it's trading at a significant discount to sort of what its fundamentals would say, because it's simply not trading. Um, and so the other way of, of looking at things is to look at the one place um, in the subprime and ABS space where there is something liquid, um, which is the ABX index. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, the analogy I like to use is you know, if we're talking about trying to value homes themselves, one approach is to say, well, how much is the land worth? How much would it cost to rebuild the home? How much right. are the materials? Um, do they have a nice kitchen? How much would it cost right. to build that kitchen, et cetera? And the other thing is to look across the street and say, would that house just trade for or just sell for? Um, Comparables. Yeah. So, so it's almost a bottom-up versus a top-down. Yeah, that's approach. a good way of putting it. And so what is the, how does the ABX index fit into this? The, the ABX index, the biggest reason it fits into this is that it trades. Um, and so, okay, why does it trade? The, the index is, um, is really more of a contract. It's not, it's not an index like you think about the Dow Jones Industrial Average, et cetera, that's an average computed by an agent and published, et cetera, for, for other things to reference. Um, the, the index is a standardized portfolio. Um, so in, in this case, uh, each series of the index would contain 20 ABS deals. Um, so an ABS deal is one set of bonds written on one pool of mortgages. Um, and that set of bonds would have a triple A piece, a double A piece sort of tranched okay. into different um, credit quality. And one of these index contracts um, would reference all of the bonds of a similar credit quality. So in this case, it's usually 20 bonds. That's kind of the, the way it's formulated. Um, and the contract is basically one party effectively buys protection. So they pay some premium on an ongoing basis. The other party um, contracts to reimburse for any default-related losses. So that would be principal write-downs that hit the bonds. That would be missed interest payments that hit the bonds, et cetera. So it's very similar um, to some very established contracts in the corporate credit space. Um, okay. But because there's a, a large degree of standardization, so um, the, the portfolio is published every six months, it's the most liquid bonds that are out there. There are minimum requirements in terms of the size of these deals. Um, and you have a, a fairly large dealer com community committed to making markets in this. Um, that you've got now a product that trades liquidly. 
Um, and it gives you a view of asset-backed securities then. It's that's right. So you've got, by, by observing the price, for example, of you know, how much does protection on the AA ABX index cost, um, that gives you a view, well, specifically it gives you a view of what is the market saying about these 20 bonds. Um, but if we make one logical leap, we can say, well, those are the most liquid bonds that are out there. That's a pretty good indication of the market sentiment to ABX paper, or to subprime ABS paper overall. Um, and so that's really the argument to say, well, if this trades liquidly, um, if I've got good pricing information every day, then shouldn't that be something that I take into account if I'm valuing or trying to model risk um, on individual bonds that actually may not even be part of the index but are in the same space? So speaking in terms of risk, what what would be your general advice then to investors, let's say institutional investors in Europe? I mean, you're based in Geneva. Do you see problems from institutional investors there? Well, certainly there have been a, you know, there have been a no shortage of European institutions who've got an egg on their face for for being exposed um, in this space. Whether we're talking German banks, et cetera, um, I think holding these the certainly eventually you, you have to look at the fundamentals of what you hold um, because your ultimate losses are going to be did the mortgages underlying the specific securities that I've bought mm-hmm. did. Did they default? Have there been foreclosures there? Have losses sort of spilled up? Um, but if we're talking about trying to get some sense of where these things should be trading, um, to get some sense of what kind of market volatility is around these, then I think using the the index contracts as a proxy for that is very useful. Now, it's not as easy as just saying, well, pretend I hold the index. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the index is going to have its own set of uh, uh, descriptive statistics. Uh, again, how much is in adjustable loans? Um, what is the overall credit quality? Who were the underwriters, et cetera? Um, and a specific security I hold may be different from that. It may be have it might have a longer duration, et cetera. So I think that's where the art of this comes in. And that how do I use that comparable, but adjust for the fact that you know my house is a nicer kitchen. I've got slightly more square feet, et cetera. Okay. okay. So you play off the index. The, a, the ABX, and then you try to adjust for what's in your portfolio. I think you try to exactly. I think you try to compensate for the fact that you know maybe mine is slightly worse quality, um, maybe mine is slightly shorter duration, um, but the index gives me a fair amount of things to trade from. I mean, each uh, each series does uh, does contain um, five uh, credit quality tranches. So you know if if I held something that's double A, I've got something that looks representative for that. Um, there have now been four series issued, um, which more or less means uh, refers to when the issuance happened, um, when the contract started. So each one of these series will reference ABS deals done at a particular point in time, typically okay. a block of six months. And so you've got a way of saying, well, um, actually, I bought stuff that was issued in 2006, and so I can pick an index contract that represents that as opposed to one that was issued in the latter half of 2007, which looks even worse. Now, in the CDO space, it's more complicated because there are so many layers. Is that? that Yeah, I would say CDOs are a way of putting one more layer of complexity on this. I mean, so just looking at ABS, it's it's already pretty nasty. Um, 
you have a set of mortgages. I'm um, always after definitions, so I, I want to okay. know your definition of nasty here. Okay. Um, I think nasty is part of it is that we're gotten, we've got to three layers. So let me explain what I mean by that. Um, the bottom layer of the underlying mortgages. So we take a, we take a pool of mortgages, and those aren't those aren't easy to deal with themselves. Um, this is a very different problem from where a lot of the work in analyzing mortgages has been done, which is more in the prime space, where you can count on pools being pretty homogeneous, mm-hmm. um, and so you can make a lot of simplifying assumptions because of that. These are all over the place mm-hmm. um, in terms of credit quality, in terms of behavior of different um, uh, underwriters, etc. You have ABS securities that are written backed by a pool of mortgages, um, and one ABS deal will, among other things, um, have mechanisms to create uh, bonds of different credit quality. Um, and so the, the simplest uh, feature to do that is to tranche um, where the losses go. Um, so to say that the most junior bonds written in a single ABS deal will be the first ones to receive losses, mm-hmm. the next most junior, the next one to receive losses, et cetera. Now, there are more mechanisms, but that's probably the most important um, in terms of being able to tailor the credit quality. Um, so by the time you get to an ABS security, you've already got a complicated set uh, of mortgages, some structuring on top of that that's created the particular credit profile that, that the issuer wanted to go to market with. Um, now you now you look at CDOs and you're putting yet another layer of structuring on that. So I take to create a CDO, I buy a set of ABS securities of let's say similar credit quality, um, and then I apply another tranching mechanism to those. So once again, I'm going to say there's a junior part, a middle part, a senior part, and once again say well losses on these ABS securities will first go to the junior, then to the mezzanine, et cetera. But losses that go into those are, in turn, um, the result of, uh, of, a, of a structuring mechanism. Um, and so keeping track of all of these pieces, as well as keeping track of what's going on in the underlying mortgages, is a huge operational cost. And I think that uh, has a lot to do with how slowly information gets out um, in terms of, you know, for banks that are large holders of these, what exactly are they exposed to and what exactly are the kinds of losses they're expecting. Right. And so in the area of pricing, we really have, it's very opaque in terms of pricing. Yeah, it's opaque because, in, it, first of all, it's opaque because you don't have much market information to, to help you. Right. Um, and then it's opaque just because it's complex. And it's not, it's not so much complex from a deep mathematical point of view, right. um, but complex just in terms of there's a lot of moving parts, there's a lot of details to, to deal with, there's a lot of data to gather, um, and this is a big problem for anybody who's, uh, you know, who's trying to keep track of these. And your view is that the, the subprime issue is similar between the U.S. and Britain, but probably confined to Britain in Europe? I, I think of the European... It, I guess I would draw one distinction between um, do the problems exist in the underlying economy and are investors exposed? Mm-hmm. Um, certainly investors are exposed everywhere just by virtue. There's been a lot it's of a this global issue investment in the U.S. World. It's yeah. a global investment world, yeah. yeah. Um, the other side of it, do other econ- are other economies similar both in terms of um, a housing market with some froth in it Mm-hmm. which I think you could say in several of the European markets, the UK, Spain. Um, but the other part of it is, 
is there a securitization machine um, that is pumping out these securities or are these mostly staying on the books of banks? And I think you see a little of that in the UK, um, but uh, I don't think that market is near the size um, you know, that, that you see in the US. So I don't think you're never going to get the amount of investors globally exposed to, uh, to a subprime backed paper, for example, coming from the UK. So from a risk management point of view today, what kinds of questions should, should we be asking? Um, uh, unfortunately, some of it is a, a, a little bit too late um, with some of these questions and that you know, the losses are already happening. And I think uh, you know, certainly the first order of business is just um, looking at what you hold and trying to make sense of um, you know, what do the remission reports say about what's happened to the underlying mortgages? How does that flow through to what I hold? Um, how do I get some semblance of evaluation of what I hold? But there's where I do think it, you still have to look to these index products. These things are still well-behaved, um, well-behaved from the point of view that they're not jumping around. The pricing information seems pretty smooth. Um, there was a, a remittance report um, a couple of days ago, and one of the com- UBS made the comment that, you know, unlike previous ones of these, um, the market didn't jump when the report came out. Okay. The news wasn't good, um, but I, I think that there's enough information flowing through that this isn't a market where you get a bit of information and all the prices jump by a huge amount. That information is flowing through in an orderly way. Um, so the so information is starting to be priced into the market. Yeah, yeah, I would say that. Um, and so I, I, again, I, I do think that um, if uh, if there's anything left, <laughs> um, depending on how you're holding these securities, then looking at how volatile they will continue to be, looking at you know the market's overall appetite for this, which is obviously pretty small at this point. Um, I still think some of these uh, liquid securities are a way of of cleaning some of that information. Well, Chris, thank you very much for a great view of of the subprime world. And uh, thank you for joining us today for this uh, episode in our Take 15 series. Copyright 2008, CFA Institute. No part may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, electronic, mechanical, recording, or otherwise, without the express prior written permission of CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.